started a couple of weeks ago a series called Spiritual Warfare. I mean, as disciples of Jesus, we know the spiritual element of the world around us is real. It's not the subject of fantasy. It's not the subject of fairy tales. It is a, a real reality, as it were, of something that is constantly going on around us. Now, with this realization of a spiritual world and a spiritual war is a balance we must maintain. Spirit, uh, C.S. Lewis explains the balance this way. He said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, according to C.S. Lewis, both extremes work in favor of the enemy. Disbelieving in their existence allows them to roam and work freely among us without any opposition from disciples of Christ. And an unhealthy interest in them keeps our eyes focused on them and not on Jesus. I have three goals for this series on spiritual warfare as we're kind of ending the year out. One is to remind us of the battle we're in without leading us into either unhealthy extreme. Second, for us to take seriously the call to fight the good fight for ourselves and for those around us. And third, to encourage us to keep our eyes on Jesus. One of the things we'll see in this series is that our our victory is only found in Jesus and through Jesus. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. And apart from him, we can do nothing, Jesus says. And so we want to keep our eyes firmly grounded on him. The passage we're looking at tonight is a continuation of something we started a few weeks ago. And it's a passage where we're called to be actively involved in the battle. So go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 through 20. If you, uh, 18 through 20, if you have a pew Bible, it should be on page 910. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. First Timothy, chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, with which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. The title of the message is a Call to Arms. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and worthy. How we come with a desire, Lord, to to learn from your word, to know what we're supposed to do. Father, the idea of a spiritual warfare that we're in a battle in this world is not news to anyone in this room tonight. Father, we've gone through spiritual battles. We are likely facing one at this moment tonight. So, Father, we we don't need to be reminded about the battle nearly as much as we need to know how to fight it. And, Lord, as we look at Really, a lot of the Christian world and what it says on how to fight spiritual battles. So much of that is wrapped up in myth and just sheer folly that we could easily be led astray into doing things that aren't real and aren't from you. So we want what we do to be rooted and grounded in your word. Father, we want to fight. We want to be actively involved in the war, but we want to do it in a way that's right. So let your word and your spirit work together tonight to open our minds to understand what we're to do and how we're to do it. Your Holy Spirit, take the word and encourage us where we need encouraging, strengthen us where we need strengthening, convict us where we need convicting, and just generally work to make us ever more like Jesus. Father, make us to be a people who are strong in the Lord and the power of your might. 
so that we can stand in the evil day. And when it's all over, we've done all and we're still standing in the name of Christ. Have your way in our hearts. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Let me say what you once said. Nothing more, nothing less. We ask all things in the mighty name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. may be seated. So the passage is clearly a call to arms. Now, most of what I've read says Timothy was timid. Uh, And this is why Paul often speaks about his need to take courage. Paul reminding him God has not given him a spirit of fear or a spirit of timidity, depending on which translation you have. It's also the reason Paul calls on Timothy in this passage to fight the good fight. Paul is is basically telling Timothy, we're in a war and this is no time for timidity and passivity. You must be actively involved. You can't sit on the bench. You need to jump up and be counted. This idea of a call to action is is our main idea. We must be actively involved in fighting spiritual battles. Just as there was no time for timidity and passivity from Timothy, there is no time for timidity and passivity from us. We must be actively involved in fighting spiritual battles. Now, Paul's call in this passage is broken up into three parts. There is the charge, the anchors, and the warning. Last time we looked at the charge in verse 18. Fight the good fight. That is the charge issued to Timothy. That is the charge issued to us. We were reminded in that that the fight we are in is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We talked about those last time, so I won't go over them tonight. Tonight we'll finish up the passage. So there was the charge. Fight the good fight of faith. Secondly, there are the anchors in our battle, and that is faith and conscience. Now, Paul switches in this point from an army illustration to a navy one. He talks about people having made a shipwreck of their faith, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But right now, I just want you to notice two things Paul gives us as anchors to keep us from making a shipwreck of our faith. Now, the first one he talks about is faith. Keeping faith. Uh, now, by faith, he is not talking about our faith in Jesus. Instead, he's referring to the truths of Christianity uh, and of Jesus that are revealed in God's word. So he's not talking about keep faith in Jesus, but he's talking about more keep the faith, keep the Christian faith, keep your faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, the book of Jude talks about it in this way. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. So Jude's initial design, the book of Jude, was to write about the gospel, right? our common salvation. Probably Jude wanted to write a book kind of like Ephesians or Romans that was here's what the gospel is and here's what Christ has done and give the doctrinal background behind that and then from there launch out into here's what this means to us on a practical level. But as he sat down to write, he realized false teachers come into the church and they were causing all kinds of trouble and he felt that there was a need to, to write to them to contend earnestly for the faith. Right, for the faith that was once for all, all time, handed down to the saints. So he's not talking about our faith in Jesus so much as he's talking about the, the faith as the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. He was encouraging them to contend for the Christian faith or for Christianity in and of itself. Now, Christianity is a religion based upon 
things we believe to be true. Right? That's what it is. The things we believe to be true range from our doctrine about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to how humans ought to live in their lives, to what kind of attitudes and actions and reactions we ought to have and what kind of things are just always wrong. What we believe is meant to guide the way we live our lives. Everything in our lives, our values, our priorities, our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, our speech, our relationships, our treatment of others, our use of money, our use of time, and any other part of our life should flow out of our beliefs, our faith, our Christian faith. But our beliefs, our faith, our Christian faith must be built on something. Right? There must be some solid foundation that we can say, this is why I believe what I believe. This is why I believe this about Jesus. This is why I believe this about salvation. What must our faith be built upon? Well, the answer is our faith must be built on God's word. Faith in and of itself has no inherent value. Let me say that again. Faith in and of itself has no inherent value. Just because someone believes something does not make that belief significant. Just because someone believes something does not make that belief valuable. It does not mean that belief has any value or any help. Sincerely believing a lie will not save anyone, no matter how sincerely they believe that lie to be true. Sincerely believing a lie will not help someone to stand in the spiritual battles that we face, no matter how sincerely they hold to those beliefs. Sincere faith in a lie will not help us in our lives in any way, no matter how sincerely we hold those faith, those things to be true. Faith only has value when it is built upon the truth, truth that is revealed to us in God's word. Therefore, we must take God's word with its commands, its warnings and its exhortations very seriously. We must ensure that what we believe it is not based upon emotions. I would like this to be true. It cannot be based upon culture. The world says this is true. It cannot be based upon traditions. Grandma and grandpa taught me this was true. None of that ultimately matters. What we believe must come from what is revealed to us in God's word. Paul said God's word is inspired by God and it is to be used to determine our doctrine, what we believe and what we teach is truth. He said, God's word will show us where our beliefs and actions are wrong because none of us have perfect actions and perfect beliefs. So God's word is going to show us where we're wrong. But not only is God's word going to show us that we're wrong, God's word is going to show us what's right. Right. So it's going to say, you believe this. That's the wrong belief. You should believe this instead. It's going to say you're doing this. That's wrong. You should be doing this instead. It's going to say you're acting like this. That's wrong. You should be acting like this instead. 
God's word will show us how to correct our beliefs and actions when they're wrong. God's word will show us how to build and to live our lives in such a way that what we do is righteous. God's word will equip us to do everything Jesus wants us to do. All of that is in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Jesus said God's word is the foundation we are to build our lives upon. Jesus said we are only going to be able to weather the storms of life, the spiritual battles we face, and not be destroyed if our lives are built on God's word. He said that only by building on this solid foundation will we be able to go through the storms, through the battles, and at the end still be standing. It's Matthew 7, 24 through 27. The author of Hebrews tells us that the promises of God as revealed in God's word are unchangeable. And they are a sure and a steadfast anchor for the soul. Therefore, we must cling to. To the faith that is revealed in God's word. The way a drowning man clings to a life preserver. Because truly, the life of our souls depends on our faith being built upon what is revealed to us from God's word. I have a fictional book about a demon lord who writes letters to an underling demon about how to deceive and destroy humans. That are assigned to him. The demon lord, his name is Falgren, frequently tells his underling to do what he can to keep his charge from what he calls the forbidden book. Because the demons know when people begin to take God's word seriously, they, the demons, begin to lose their ability to deceive and destroy. Now, lest we say, well, that's just a fictional book, let us remember our first encounter with Satan. Is him coming to the people created by God, placed in the garden by God, who have commands from God and saying to them, has God said his very first attack was on the revealed will of God, the word of God. He hasn't changed. He needed to get Adam and Eve to disbelieve, to separate them from God's word so he could get them to disobey God so he could destroy them. And that's what he still is working to do in our day. If we want to be properly anchored for spiritual battles, we cannot be careless about our commitment to God's word. We cannot be careless about our commitment to ensure our faith, what we believe, comes from what is revealed to us in God's word. Now, the second anchor Paul gives could be surprising. Keeping faith and a good conscience. Now, personally, I find it fascinating that he talks about the conscience here. I've always kind of considered the conscience to be like our hearts. Jeremiah tells us it is desperately wicked, not something we're to follow as a guide about the heart. And so I just assumed the conscience was very similar. But as I studied this passage and and God's word and what it says about our conscience, I was forced to make some adjustments to what I believe about our conscience. From studying God's word, it seems that the conscience is an inner sense of right and wrong, a God given sense of right and wrong. Paul, writing to the Romans, says when the Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these are not having the law or a lot of themselves, 
and that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Right. So Gentiles, the people who don't know God, they instinctively say some things are right, some things are wrong. They instinctively say people ought to do this and they ought not do this. And many times what they instinctively say are right and wrong are the commands as given by God in the Ten Commandments. You ought not kill. You ought not commit adultery. You ought not lie. Probably shouldn't covet other people's stuff. These things are instinctive in some ways in in humanity because they've been placed there by God. In this way, when we do this, when people say they recognize there are certain things that are inherently right and inherently wrong, it shows the work of the law written on their cards. And then how they live that out affects their conscience. Their conscience testifies and the thoughts either accuse or else defend them. So if they do what they instinctively know to be right, their heart and their conscience will or the thoughts and their conscience will defend them. That was the right decision. And if they do what they instinctively know, they don't do or they do the opposite of what they instinctively know to be right, then their conscience and their thoughts will accuse them. The conscience is something God places within us to help us know right from wrong. And that's the the two main ways the conscience works to help us is to convict us of sin and wrong and to testify when we do the right things in the right way and with the right motives. Two examples of this we don't have time to look at, but you can look at them later. John 8 and 2 Corinthians 1. Specifically, John 8, 9, 2 Corinthians 1 and 12. John 8, the woman caught in the very act of adultery. They want to stone her because she was caught in adultery and that was the that was the punishment for adultery. So Jesus says to them, okay, you ought to do it. But he who's not sin cast the first stone. Then he sits down and begins to draw in the sand. And God's word says that them, they were convicted in their consciences and they began to leave from oldest to youngest. Their conscience testified against them. It accused them, you're not perfect. Then Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1 and 12... That he had acted with integrity when he was among the Corinthians. And his conscience bore witness to this. He didn't have a guilty conscience about the way he had ministered among them. So the conscience testifies against us when we're wrong. And it, 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 it defends us if we do what's right. So how does all of this make the conscience an anchor for the soul in our spiritual battles? Look at 1 Timothy 4. Just flip over a page or two in your Bible. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now it's an intense passage. It talks about prophecy of the future given by the Holy Spirit. It talks about people falling away from the Christian faith, turning away from it. It talks about, there's the fact, deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, um, and people being led astray by this false teaching and in the process searing their own conscience. Now, every part of that is significant. The demonically inspired false doctrine would be any doctrine contradicting God's word. 
Right? Anything that contradicts what God's Word says is right and real and true is demonically inspired. Lots of ways we would see this in our culture. One way that's probably most common is some teaching saying what God's Word calls sin is not sin. You take any sin as revealed in God's Word and you can Google, is adultery a sin? And there will be millions of responses. Right? Google has access to everything on the World Wide Web. They'll bring all these millions of responses to them. Some will say, yes, of course, it's a sin, and here's why. Others will say, well, no, I think polyamory is probably an acceptable way to live your life, and this is why adultery is not a sin. Now, this doctrine that says sin is not a sin, adultery is not a sin, or whatever sin we want to use... Some of these articles are going to be be from like atheists and people who hate Christianity, and that's to be expected. Some of these articles, though, are going to be written by seminary professors. They're going to be written by pastors of churches. They're going to be written by people who profess in one way or another they would profess to be Christian. So we have to ask ourselves, have these people stumbled across some new revelation the rest of us don't have access to. And that's why they've written these papers saying what God's Word says is a sin is not a sin. And the answer, of course, is no. They do not have a new revelation from God contradicting what is written in God's Word. Instead, they're living out First Timothy 4, 1 and 2. They're giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And so they have believed them. And they're writing them, and people are reading those, and they're being deceived by them and going off into sin every day. And this gets us to the searing of the conscience. Now, since the conscience is given by God to help us know right from wrong, it will convict us when what we do is wrong or if we're about to do something wrong. Have you ever been about to do something wrong? And something within you just said, you know you shouldn't do that. That's your conscience. Or have you ever done something wrong and then felt bad about it for a while? What do we call that? We often call that having what? A guilty conscience. It's our conscience. Our conscience begins to be seared when we ignore what it's telling us. When our conscience says you shouldn't do that because it's wrong and we do it anyway, we start a process of searing our conscience. When we do something and our conscience says that was wrong, you should stop and we continue to do it, we begin the process of searing our conscience. Now, I don't think it happens immediately the first time we do this, if that was the case, we would all be in a very bad place because I'm sure we've all ignored our conscience at a time or two. But rather, it happens over time. The more we ignore our God-given conscience as it tries to prevent us from sin, the more we dull the feeling. The more we ignore our conscience when it says don't touch that and we continue to ignore it and we continue to touch it, eventually... Our conscience doesn't tell us not to touch it anymore. Or the more we've done something, our conscience says that was wrong, don't do it again. And we keep doing it again and again. Eventually, our conscience 
stops bothering us about the thing that we're doing. Now, what we often think is, what our culture would have us think, is what's happened at this point is we have maybe grown in some ways. We've, we've grown beyond the old puritanical way of thinking. And we've kind of evolved in a bit. And we're being freed from that old-fashioned guilt trip. Or it would have us think we've, we've done it enough that we've realized it wasn't really wrong. We've, we've done it so much that we, we've realized oh, no, that really wasn't wrong. It, it makes me happy to continue to do this. Therefore, it can't be wrong. Neither of those is true. We haven't evolved. We haven't learned that it's not true. Rather, what we've done is we've seared our conscience in this area of life. Since our conscience can convict us of sin, and since our conscience will be clear when we've done right things in the right ways with right motives, then we must make a point to keep our conscience clear. If our conscience bothers us about something, we must listen. I mean, let's just take a point and say, maybe something isn't my conscience. Maybe it's really not my God-given conscience telling me not to do this. But honestly, is it worth the risk of searing my conscience to do it anyway? Wouldn't it be better to say, boy, something within me says this is wrong. Maybe I should stop and spend some time studying God's word and, and asking God about what it is I ought to do. Wouldn't it be better to take a beat and just hold off than run the risk? Because searing the conscience, it can be an ignorance. Well, I don't know that it's really my conscience. Well, guess what? Ignorance of whether or not it's really your conscience doesn't stop it from searing your conscience. The more we do the wrong, the more the more dullness we feel about the wrong. And that dullness is not a good thing. That dullness is a seared conscience. Paul gives us, go ahead and turn back to 1 Timothy 1. Paul gives us these, these things, faith and a clear conscience as anchors we need. While fighting spiritual battles. In spiritual battles, really in life in general, we need more than one anchor. One anchor is sufficient when things are calm. But when the storms or battle arise, we need more. Two anchors not only serve as a backup in case one fails, but two anchors keep us from being driven back and forth or side to side in the midst of the battle or in the midst of the waves. If we are sound in faith and we have a clear conscience, very likely we are in a very good and a very safe place in our relationship with God. On the other hand, if my beliefs are based upon my emotions, if my beliefs are based upon what I've always been taught and and granny couldn't be wrong, And if I've got a nagging feeling something I'm believing or doing is not right and my conscience isn't clear, we are not in a good. We are not in a safe place in our relationship with God. Why does it matter? And that brings us to our third point. The warning. There will be casualties. 
Now, I was going to initially put this, there could be casualties. But this is a more stark warning, and this is the reality. If we were to take time tonight, because we're going to talk about people who have shipwrecked their faith. And if we were to take time to think through people we know who at one point were involved in church and devoted to Jesus and are none of those things now, we would all have more than one name. We know people who have shipwrecked their faith. The warning is casualties are a certainty. There will be casualties in this battle. So how important is it for us to fight the world, flesh, and the devil? To ensure our faith or our beliefs come from God's word and to keep our conscience clear? Paul answers that question by telling us about two people who had become casualties. Because the reality is the fight can be abandoned. The guidance of God's word and our consciences can be rejected. And the result of this, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, among these are Hymenus and Alexander. The result of abandoning the fight and of rejecting the guidance of God's word and the guidance of our conscience is a shipwrecked faith. As we look at these two men... We should see them as a warning on two levels. We should see them as a warning of what can happen to our brothers and sisters in Christ when they abandon their fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. What can happen when they start to get their their beliefs, their faith from something other than God's word and when they begin to reject the guidance of their own consciences. You know, we can kind of see someone's life for paying attention when they stop fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil and begin to embrace those things in some ways. We can hear when what they believe comes less from God's Word and more from some blogger or some book or some cultural theology that's being taught. We can see the conflict in them as they're violating their own consciences. And we need to, when we see those things, rather than say, gosh, that's not good. I hope they do better. We need to see that going on and say, this is their end. If they do not correct those things, and quickly, I believe, this is their end. At the same time. We need to see them a warning about what can happen to us if we abandon our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. If we start getting our faith, what we believe, from something other than God's Word. And if we begin to reject the guidance of our conscience. Because the reality is it can happen to any of us. Doesn't Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, maybe verse 13, That anyone thinks he stands to to take heed lest he fall? The reality is all of those people we thought of earlier, they never thought they would be here. They never thought they would be in that place. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are always pulling at us just like they're pulling at everyone else. And the world is always telling us what we ought to believe. 
And in much of what the world is telling us, what we ought to believe, it's always going to contradict God's word. But much of that is going to appeal to us in one way or another. It's going to to soothe our hearts about someone we love that has made a shipwreck of their faith. It's going to to ease us about someone that's living in sin to say, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal. So there's always the pull of that. And as we do this, our conscience is going to to say warning. And those of us who are more mature. Strangely enough, are very likely to ignore that. To say. I know better. I would never end up here. There's just no way this this is just something. And to begin to excuse it. We need to see this as a warning as what can happen to us if we're not careful as well. It says that they have rejected keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered a shipwreck. They have rejected faith and a good conscience. And the Greek word translated as rejected means exactly what it looks like. It is willfully and deliberately rejecting Guidance of God's word and the guidance of our consciences. It pictures pushing it away with force. It's not a I need to spend time and work this out. I'm not sure if what this is is wrong. So I'm going to spend time studying God's word. I'm going to come up with an answer and spend time praying and seeking the Lord and seeking the word. and, And I'll get an answer that way. It's not that. Nothing wrong with that. It's saying no way this is wrong. Now there's just no way. I'm, I'm rejecting. I, I, that's just your interpretation, Lavina. Just because you interpret that way doesn't mean I have to. Well, Sharon, that's your conscience it bothers. Just because it bothers your conscience doesn't mean it bothers mine. It is rejecting it willfully, deliberately, pushing it away with force. And what we see is that when a person abandons their fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil... They continually get their beliefs, their faith from something other than God's word. And they persist in rejecting the guidance of their conscience. They end up making a shipwreck of their faith. Always. This is always the end of abandoning the fight. This is always the end of getting our belief system from something other than God's word. This is always the end of pushing back and rejecting what our conscience tells us, our God-given conscience tells us is right and wrong. Let me show you how this happens. Turn to Hebrews 7. I'm sorry, Hebrews 3, page 921. Hebrews 3, we're going to look at verses 7 through 19, sort of, but I really want you to... To look at verse 12 first. Hebrews 3 and 12, page 921. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So this is a warning about what? Falling away from the living God. But who is this warning addressed to? The lost world? No. To brothers and sisters. 
And in God's word, brothers and sisters always refers to legitimately born again disciples of Jesus. So this is a warning to born again disciples of Jesus to beware lest something happen and they fall away from the living God. Now, what would be the point of a warning like this if born again disciples of Jesus could not fall away from the living God? Clearly, the warning is meant to be taken seriously. Second, thirdly, notice what causes this an evil, unbelieving heart. So again, get the full weight of what we're told here. Born again, disciples of Jesus are being warned to be careful so that they do not end up with an evil, unbelieving heart that causes them to fall away from God. Born again, disciples of Jesus are being warned to be careful of things that could destroy their faith. Now look at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we keep the beginning of our commitment firm unto the end. Notice the conditional if about sharing in what belongs to Christ. Our becoming a partaker in everything that belongs to Christ is conditioned on our being faithful to the end. It is certain if we are faithful to the end, we will share in everything that belongs to Christ. But that does beg a question, doesn't it? What happens if we're not faithful to the end? Well, it seems what this would be saying is we won't share and everything that belongs to Christ. So what could cause a born again disciples of Je- disciple of Jesus's heart to become evil and unbelieving and cause them to fall away from God and miss everything Jesus has for them? Well, look at verse 13. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is the culprit. And notice the hardened. Be hardened by it. Hardened is similar to the searing that we talked about earlier. Sin has a faith destroying effect on our lives. And sin has a heart hardening effect on our lives. And this is where abandoning the fight against the world, the flesh and the devil, getting our beliefs from something other than God's word and persistent rejection of the guidance of our conscience comes into play. Because if we're a born again disciple of Jesus, before this to happen, we must first give up the fight. We must secondly begin to justify the life we're living and the things we're doing. So we have to find our belief system from something other than God's word. And we have to reject our conscience. 
And the longer we live this way, the harder our hearts become toward God and toward the things of God. Until eventually, we just fall away altogether. Look at verse 15. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So this is a picture of God calling the believer out of a life of sin. This is a picture of the believer stopping the fight and God saying, don't give up the fight. Don't stop the fight. Continue to fight. It's a picture of the believer saying, I don't know. This book I read, I mean, I know it's not what's in here, but this book, this guy makes so much sense. And he's so much smarter than anybody I've ever met. He, he knows about so much about what the Greek and the Hebrew and these old things over here. I, I mean, and God's saying, don't listen to him. Look at the word. It's a picture of the believer beginning to, to ignore his conscience. And God's sort of screaming at him, don't ignore your conscience. But notice what happens. If you hear his voice. So God's calling, come out of this stuff, let go of that stuff, come back to me. The person has to harden their hearts against God. It is, it's not accidental. It is intentional. They intentionally reject what God is saying and so harden their hearts against God. We see this idea again earlier. Look at chapter, I'm sorry, verse 7. Same chapter, just verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me on the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, verses eight through eleven are a quote from Psalm ninety five. And it's a psalm. It's just what it's talking about. It's the author of Hebrews is telling them this to, to listen and not make the mistakes their forefathers made. But notice what he says in verse seven, because I think this is really interesting. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, what he's telling them is this was written really a long time before you, Psalm 95 was. But today the Holy Spirit is saying it to you. Today the Holy Spirit is saying to you through God's word, don't harden your heart. Don't continue to persist in this way of rebellion. The Holy Spirit through the author is, is urging them. To keep on keeping on. Urging them to listen to God. To obey God. And not harden their hearts against God in rebellion. The lesson for us. Is when we hear God's word. Or when we read God's word. We are hearing God's voice just as surely. As they were. And God is calling to us. To stay in the fight. To get our beliefs from the word. To not violate and sear our conscience. And in that moment when God is speaking to us from his word. We will make a choice. And we will either hear God and hearken to God and do what he says. Or we will reject God. And we will harden our hearts against God. I mean that goes on. Any time, every single time we open God's word, God is speaking to us. God is calling to us. God is 
seeking to, to guide us along the best path for our lives. And so every time we make a choice, will we hear and heed God or will we reject God and so harden our hearts? And the author of Hebrews, the, the argument he's making is, if we follow the example of those in the wilderness who heard and hardened rather than heard and heeded, then the end result of that will be an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. We turn away from the hope that we have in Jesus. And at that point, we have shipwrecked our faith. Hymenus and Alexander did. It's a very serious warning. Hebrews 3, 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. It's warning that we disregard to our own peril. This is why we must be actively involved in fighting spiritual battles. This is why we must be sure that our beliefs are based upon God's word. This is why we must pay attention to our conscience. So much of what passes for spiritual warfare teaching focuses on spectacular kind of things. Binding the devil. Rebuking Satan. Casting out demons when in all probability nearly every spiritual battle we will ever fight will be within ourselves the most important spiritual battle we fight is the spiritual battle within us if we lose the battle inside of us we lose every other battle. If we lose the battle inside of us, nothing else matters. We are of no value to the kingdom of God and to those who are suffering and falling away if we are losing the battle for our own souls and our own faith and our own hearts. We must fight the battle. We must fight the pull of the world, which is always pulling at us. We must fight the flesh, which is always pulling at us. We must fight demonic temptations and attacks, which are always happening all around us. We must fight to ensure what we believe comes from God's word. Check me, check any teacher you listen to, any book you read against God's word, what we believe about everything must come from here. And then pay very careful attention to your conscience as it guides you toward right and wrong. Because if we don't do those things, we will end up like Hymenus and Alexander. And we will make a shipwreck. Of our faith. Something I wondered as I studied and thought about this what was the collateral damage 
from Hymenus and Alexander making a shipwreck of their faith. I mean, there's always collateral damage when someone makes a shipwreck of their faith. I mean, were they married? Did they have kids? If so, what what happened to them when Hymenus and Alexander made a shipwreck of their faith? Things I've read, it seems Hymenus became a false teacher. This is right. Then the shipwreck of his faith ended with people being led to hell. If you or I make a shipwreck of our faith, there will be collateral damage. As a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, if I make a shipwreck of my faith, there will be collateral damage. There will be collateral damage with my wife and my daughters. There will be collateral damage with the church and the people of the church. But it's not just me because I'm a pastor. It's you as well. If you make a shipwreck of your faith, there will be collateral damage to your family. There will be collateral damage within the church. And make no mistake, there are people in your life who watch you. As far as they're concerned, you are the epitome of what a real Christian is. If you make a shipwreck of your faith, it will have collateral damage with them. This is why we must fight and win this battle. We cannot lose the battle with the world. We cannot lose the battle with the flesh. We cannot lose the battle with the devil. We cannot lose the battle for our faith to be anchored in God's word. We cannot lose the battle to listen to our conscience. And we cannot lose the battle to understand the warning of Hymenus and Alexander is that it could happen to us. So as we come to the end, the questions we all have to answer. I mean, am I fighting? Are we fighting? Are we actively involved in fighting spiritual battles? Because we're all in one. Are we fighting the world to keep it from shaping our values and and influencing us? Are we fighting the flesh to keep it from leading us away from Jesus? Are we fighting the devil in the ways he's working? Are we firmly anchored? Is our faith, our belief system firmly anchored in what God has said in his word? And not upon something else. Could we say. As Paul did. God is my witness. My conscience bearing record. I'm doing what God would have me to do. In every area of my life. Are we living with a clean conscience. Tonight as we pray. We need to spend time asking God. To help us fight and win these spiritual battles. Ask him to show us if we're. Letting up in an area. Giving up on the fight. Ask Him to show us if there's something in our life where we are building our belief system on something other than God's Word. And if we're living with a clean conscience, we already know that or not. Let's ask God to help us to do as we should. Let's pray. Father, we love You tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and devotion. Help us, O Lord, to be actively involved in fighting spiritual battles. Lord, to fight the battle for ourselves let us fight the world the flesh and the devil just with all that we are and all that we can let us fight to ensure what we believe is pulled out of your word and not not based upon emotions or culture or a book or something we've always been taught that's not found in your word and let us fight to ensure we live with a clear conscience toward you above all else Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.